Chapter 6, verses 15 through 23 is our text for today. This is the 33rd message in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary. One of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote this book was to raise money for a missionary endeavor to Spain. You know, the heart of God is missions. And so perhaps you should consider whether or not God is calling you to be a foreign missionary But even if he is not, I can tell you with certainty, he is calling you to help, to send, and to assist those who are called to go. Today's message is 40 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is, You Can't Be Switzerland. Please turn to Romans chapter 6. As you are turning, remember that God loves you. As I am preaching, remember that God loves you. And for the rest of your life, remember that God loves you. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Uh, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Uh, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Father in heaven, as we embark upon another year, I thank you that you have given us life. You are kind to us and we are grateful. And now, Lord, as we prepare to embark upon another sermon, I would pray, dear God, that you would grant spiritual life. Lord, for those that are dead today, I pray that you would bring them to life by your gospel through your spirit. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that your word would be life to us today. I pray, dear God, that there would be an understanding of the text, the argument in the text, the flow and the logic of the text Lord, more than understanding the text, I pray, God, that there would be a sense in which, Lord, we are gripped by the text in our hearts and that we desire to be different and that we will leave this place different, slaves to righteousness. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin year number two in our study through the book of Romans, let's do a very quick overview of what has been covered so far in the first five and a half chapters of this book. Uh, At the time of this writing, Paul himself had not yet been to Rome, but he heard that there were problems in the church at Rome and that some Jewish Christians were having trouble getting along with some Gentile Christians, that they were having disagreements with one another. 
And so in order to correct this, Paul writes them a letter in A.D. 57. We call that letter Romans. It's the longest letter in the New Testament. And in it, what Paul is going to attempt to do is to clear up misunderstandings between Jews and Gentiles. But before he even gets to that, he first has to establish his credibility. And the way that he goes about doing that is spelling out the gospel in great detail. And when I say great detail, I mean great detail, for that is the first eight chapters of the book. Uh, Chapter 1 makes it very clear that Gentiles are sinners. Chapter 2, he proves the point that Jews are sinners. In chapter 3, he concludes that all are sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. And then at the end of chapter 3, he makes it clear that there is salvation for these sinners, and it does not come, it does not come by works of the law, but it comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. An illustration of this is given in chapter 4, in the life of Abraham. Abraham didn't have the law. In fact, the law didn't come until about 500 years after Abraham. Nevertheless, he was justified. How? By his works? No. He was declared righteous by God simply by believing in God. And we too can be made right with God simply by believing that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised for our justification. As we move into chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, we are in a different section of the book. The first section, chapters 1 through 4, explains salvation. Chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 talk about what happens after we are saved and before we die. Paul starts off by stating that if we have faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Why? Because Christ died for the ungodly. That is, he died in their place to pay for their sins and to reconcile them to God. And then in the second half of chapter 5, Paul explains where our sin comes from. What is the origin of it? And the answer is Adam. For as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. He compares Adam to Christ. Both of them are very influential. They acted, and other people were impacted. Adam's act of sin brought about death. Christ's act of obedience brings life. And where sin abounds, grace uh, superabounds. Uh, which leads us to an interesting question as we enter chapter 6. And that is this. Since sin gives grace an opportunity to flex, should we not then sin as much as possible in order to allow grace to be magnified? In other words, let's make a really big mess so that we can demonstrate how good we are at cleaning up messes. And Paul says, absolutely not. No way. God forbid. May it never be. That is a distortion in logic. That is taking it in the wrong direction. That is taking it too far. And he uses the metaphors of life and death in the beginning of chapter 6 in order to illustrate that we are now alive in Christ. And since we are alive in Christ, we are no longer to be dominated like we once were when we were spiritually dead. Now, the last time that we were together, we concluded with chapter 6, verse 14, And he draws this conclusion, which is, For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under law, but under grace. Under law, 
means that we are under the Mosaic legislation, the law which was given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Israel was under that law for about 1,500 years, and it did not produce righteousness. Now, Paul says, we're in a new era. We are in a new covenant, and that is the covenant of grace, the age of grace, where we are not ruled by outward written codes, but we are ruled from the inside out, by the heart, from the Spirit of God, from within. And because this is true, that we are not under law, Paul anticipates that this is going to raise still more distorted logic from the people and that they are going to raise questions which take it in the wrong direction and take it too far, which brings us to where we are today in chapter 6. So what we're going to do is we're going to tackle nine verses, which is the most that we've ever attempted to study in the book of Romans so far, of the structure of this passage, the end of chapter 6, is almost identical to the structure of the first half of chapter 6, except there is one slight modification. In the first half of chapter 6, Paul is asking the question, shall we sin so that we bring about more grace? At the end of the chapter, what we're going to cover today, Paul is asking the question, can we sin because we are under grace? And in both cases, the answer is no. The point in both halves of the chapter, they are basically the same, and that is grace does not mean that we are free to sin. Now, once again, he has just told them that they are not under law, but under grace, which probably prompted some people to say, party on, no rules, no laws, we are not under law, we are under grace, and if it's just grace, all that means is we have unconditional forgiveness in everything. The cat's away, the mice will play. Ding dong, the witch is dead. There are no rules to keep, therefore there are no rules to break. This highway does not have a speed limit, so you can drive as fast as you want to drive. This is Audubon morality. And Paul says, pun intended, not so fast. You are drawing a faulty conclusion. Notice how he puts it in verse 15. What then, in light of the fact that we are not under law but under grace, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Not at all. No. No way. God forbid. As we make our way through the text today, just want to tell you there's not going to be an outline. I'm just going to go through it verse by verse, following the logic and the flow of the pattern of, of the text following on. We move on to verse 16, and he introduces a metaphor. Notice what he says in verse 16 about slavery. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Slavery. Immediately, when I hear that word, immediately when you hear that word, we think of Uncle Tom's Cabin, or we think about the American South prior to the Civil War. Uh, it consisted of kidnapping Africans and shipping them to other countries and forcing them to go to work and declaring that we own them. Uh, it was a cruel and disgusting practice. In fact, I would say it is the biggest wart on the flesh of American history. 
It was one where one human being would own another human being, like property. Well, that's what we envision when we hear the word slavery, but that's not what they would have understood when they heard that word, and that's not what Paul intended. Because slavery in the ancient Near East was very different. It was not racially based. It was not an incarceration. It was more akin to what we would call employment. 70% of the population of the world in the ancient Near East were slaves. And most of them were slaves in a voluntary way. See, when you could not make ends meet or you could not pay back something that you owed to someone else, what you would do is you would agree to be their slave for a period of time. And the imagery here is very much in line with that in Romans chapter 6. You would sell yourself or submit yourself in slavery. You were not captured. Uh, you, you, you were not apprehended. You yourself voluntarily would become a slave. I am submitting myself to you. Now, there wasn't, and I will grant you, great opportunity for advancement. Uh, It was not a cushy life, but it wasn't intended to be a cushy life. It was just a means of survival. And most slaves were not taken by force except in wars. And so what you would do is you would volunteer to work for someone. And when you did, this is the key, this is what Paul is driving home, you were then obligated to listen to them. They were obligated to sustain you, but you, in this very unglamorous life, you were obligated to listen to them and to obey them to do what they would tell you to do. So when uh, it happened, it was not cruel, it was not oppressive, but there was a very clear boss. Slaves usually would serve their master for a time, and then slaves often would re-up at the end of that time. So that's the metaphor that Paul is using here. And Paul uses it, and every one of his readers would have understood it. In fact, many of them would have actually been slaved. Now, at the beginning of verse 16, Paul is not saying anything spiritual. Uh, He is literally referring to actual slavery, and he is using this common phrase, which he uses as a rhetorical question very often, do you not know, to introduce it. And the phrase, do you not know, means I know that you do know already what I am doing here as I am reminding you of what you know already. What I'm reminding you is that when you present yourself, when you yield yourself, when you submit yourself, when you agree to work for someone else as a slave, they are your boss and they have absolute authority. As your boss, they can tell you what to do. They're going to speak and you are going to obey. Now again, they would have understood this concept much better than we do. Remember the centurion who came to Jesus and he said, I want you to heal my servant. Jesus said, very well, I will come with you. The centurion said, no, you don't have to come with me. Listen, I'm a man under authority. I understand how this works. I say to one man, go, he goes. I say to another man, come, he comes. I say to another man, do this, and he does exactly as I tell him. So you don't have to come with me. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus was amazed at his faith and said, this guy gets it. Well, I'll argue that the Romans were able to get it. They understood the concept of slavery. Now that's the metaphor. He hasn't said anything spiritual yet. He's just setting up the reality of slavery and how it works. In the middle of verse 16, he picks up the spiritual aspect of it. 
Let's read the entire verse to pick up the flow. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? That's the literal part. And now he moves to the spiritual part, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. That is what he is saying right here. He is moving it from the literal to the spiritual realm. You submit to sin as your master, and it will rule over you. And at the end of the day, that slavery to sin will yield death. Not physical death, but eternal death in hell. By contrast, Paul says, if you submit yourself to obedience, well, that's going to lead to something as well. That will lead to righteousness. Not imputed righteousness, not positional righteousness, not status righteousness, but righteous living. You know, most of the times in the book of Romans where Paul uses the word righteousness, it refers to the free gift of God which he gives, which we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is a standing which we have before him, an absolute perfect righteousness in his book. That's usually how Paul uses that word. And amen, hallelujah, that's the point of the book of Romans. It's, it's what is credited to us by God, by faith. That's wonderful. But that's not what Paul is talking about here in chapter 6, verse 16. In fact, when he mentions righteousness in chapter 6, he's not talking about salvation at all. He's talking to people who are already saved. He is speaking about sanctification or spiritual growth or righteous living. And therefore, submission to the slavery of obedience to God's will will yield a life of righteous living. Do you understand what he's saying here? You submit yourself in obedience to God, it's going to result in you becoming a slave, a slave to righteous living. Now, it's very important. In fact, it's extremely important at this point that you pay attention. And that is, you need to understand that spiritual Switzerland does not exist. Spiritual Switzerland does not exist. I have a friend and I asked him, what do you think of Switzerland? He said, I'm not really too sure, but their flag is a big plus. My grandson told me that joke. If he were to tell it today, you would laugh, okay? See, I don't need you. I have my, my grandchildren think I'm funny. Their flag is a big plus. You know that since 18, 1815, the Treaty of Paris, Switzerland has taken a position of military neutrality. They do not fight in wars. They do not take sides. They are neutral. They are neutral. Switzerland. You can't be Switzerland. In fact, I'm going to argue that even Switzerland can't be Switzerland because although technically they have not fought in a foreign war since 1815, they have helped other countries who have fought in wars. So, for example, they supplied weapons to Saudi Arabia in 2015 during the intervention in Yemen. Switzerland isn't even Switzerland. Uh, let's take this to the spiritual realm. Some people will say, I am Switzerland, spiritually speaking. I am a free moral agent. I am not enslaved to anyone. I am not enslaved to anything. I am, as Rousseau said, I am born free. Uh, people are basically good, Rousseau said, but they get corrupted by people who live in big cities. 
You are born free. If you, 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 you are your own person. I am my own person. I listen only to me. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not a slave to righteousness. I am a free, independent, morally neutral person. I'm Switzerland. And Paul says, you can't be Switzerland. And Bob Dylan agrees with the Apostle Paul. Dylan says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan, 1979. And Paul agrees with Bob Dylan. Paul disagrees with Rousseau, who says that we are born free. And Paul disagrees with Swiss foreign policy. There is no neutrality, spiritually speaking. So I don't want you to view your life, morally speaking, this way. You have master sin over here with a cage, and you have master righteousness over here with a cage, and you're in the middle, and you say to sin, you're not going to rule over me. And you say to righteousness, you're not going to rule over me. I am my own man. And Paul says, nope, there are no abstentions. You can't be Switzerland. That option is not open to you. You are either serving, in, and that means enslaved to sin, or you are enslaved and serving righteousness. You cannot be neutral. And Paul is thankful that his audience has been moved from one master to another, from a bad master to a kind master. Look at verses 17 and 18, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were, you're not this way anymore, that you were once slaves of sin. You had the monkey on your back, but not anymore. You were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Paul is thankful that his audience has been moved from one domain to another. And note that he doesn't praise them for their fortitude in this, but he says, thanks be to God, because it is the work of God. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, that he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You see, those of you who have been delivered, you know that you did not set yourself free. Do you remember when you used to be a slave to sin? Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember being released? You know that when you are released, you didn't get yourself out, but he released you. And therefore, Paul says, thanks be to God. Do you thank God for that deliverance? Notice also, very importantly, the place of teaching or the place of sound doctrine that is at work in our deliverance. In verse 17, the phrase is, is very difficult to unpack, but essentially here's what it means. It means that there was a day when you were dull and you were disinterested. 
uh, in the pattern or the standard of gospel preaching and teaching from God's Word. But now that you have been set free, you not only are interested in what that standard or pattern of biblical teaching is, but you are committed to it. Christopher Ash puts it this way, This teaching is not entrusted to the care of the Christian. Rather, the Christian is entrusted into the care of the teaching. That is very profound, and there is a difference there. In other words, we once sat as judge and jury over the Word of God. Some of it we would obey. If, if, if it was convenient for us, we would. But whether or not we would obey it was not based upon the authority of it. That was just up to us. Uh, the Word did not actually rule over us. And most importantly, we were not, in, we were not obedient to this Word. And Paul says in verse 17, this is not just an outward conformity to laws and rules. Something changed. Uh, it, it was not a matter of, okay, I'll do it. I don't want to do it, but I will do it. No, Paul says, look in verse 17, that you obeyed it from the heart. Uh, my heart used to be enslaved to sin. Sin captured my will, and it demanded my obedience. It demanded that I comply. I knew what the rules of God were. I knew the difference between right and wrong, and I hated the rules of God, or I ignored the rules of God. Uh, sometimes to appease my conscience, I would try to keep the rules of God. Sometimes in order to appear righteous in front of other people, I would, I would, when they were looking, I would go through the motions. But when no one was looking, I would go back to being myself. Uh, I, I was a slave to sin. But then when he set me free, my heart was changed. And not only was I doing God's will, but here's the key. I was doing it from the heart and I was doing it because I wanted to do it. People don't believe me, but it actually is the truth. I grew up in a house where we did not have a shower. Uh, we had a bath. We actually did get a shower about a month before I graduated from high school. But growing up, we had a bath. So here I am as a child, a dirty child. And, and, I, and I think that there was a beauty to the children who grew up in the 1960s. And those of you that are old enough to remember that, Children back in those days were, were, were dirty and it was charming. Like, like it, it, it had a charm to it. Kids today are clean and I wish you could go back to the old days when we let kids be dirty. But, but I, I would take a bath only when I was commanded to take a bath. Here's the thing. My parents did not want to spend money to fill the bathtub twice. So as the fourth child, I would be the last one to get into the bath. My brother would take a bath, and then after he was finished, I would get in, but I didn't care at all. I didn't want to be in the bath to begin with. I didn't care whether the, the, the water was clean or dirty. I didn't want to be clean. Then all of a sudden, 50 years ago in 1974, I discover girls. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I realize, okay, if I'm going to get a girl, I'm going to have to be clean. At that point, I wanted to take a bath. Not only did I want to take a bath, 
I was really good at taking baths. I, I can remember very distinctly one Saturday night when my parents asked me if I wanted to go down over the hill and spend the night with my aunt and uncle and go to church with them the next day. I said, oh, that'll be wonderful. So I, I'm just spending one night down there. And I remember before I went down the hill, I got this big grocery bag, this, this big grocery bag, and I put in it Remember like those 64 ounce shampoo bottles and, and, and the conditioner and the deodorant. And then I would, I took a big bottle, a glass bottle of Brut. Does anybody remember Brut? And I have all of these like hair products and cosmetics or whatever. And, and I was bathing maniacally. Now, the illustration breaks down in that I, I never was able to land a woman, but, but that's not the point. The point is nobody had to tell me to take a bath. I wanted to take a bath. I wanted to be clean. From the heart, there's something that had gone on. And Paul says that when you are conformed to the teaching, you obey it from the heart. St. Augustine said, uh, love God and do what you want. And when you do love God, you will want to do what he wants you to do. Uh, so I ask you today, where is your heart? What do you want to do? I'm not asking you today, what should you do? Um, you should take a bath. I'm asking you, what do you want to do? If you want to be righteous, Paul says, guess what? You are a slave to righteousness. Now at this point, as we move into verse 19, Paul realizes that there might be some either who are offended or are not really comfortable with him using the metaphor, the imagery of slavery. Uh, he should be using something like freedom or liberty uh, as an analogy, but instead he's using slavery, and they might be uncomfortable with this, and Paul knows they might be uncomfortable with this. So in a short excursus or parenthetical phrase, he says at the beginning of verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation. In other words, I am using an analogy that you can relate to and that you can understand, I do realize that this is an inadequate metaphor, but I'm only using it because of the weakness or limitations that you have. And you need to know this. When we use metaphors, when we use illustrations, there really is no apples-to-apples apples metaphor, except when it is apples and apples, and when it's apples and apples, it's no longer a metaphor, it's literal. So really, when you're talking about metaphors, not every parable is going to match up to everything. Not every metaphor, every illustration is going to match up. And what Paul is saying here is, will you please just get the gist of what I'm saying? Don't be swallowed up in the minutia of slavery. I'm using this analogy because it accurately depicts your condition. You were, past tense, slaves of sin. You are, present tense, now slaves of righteousness. And in the middle of verse 19, he picks up again the metaphor of slavery, and he continues, but notice it is identical to the reasoning that he used back in verse 13. Back in 13, which we looked at the last time we were together, let me remind you of that, Romans 6.13, do not present your members to sin as, men, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from the dead to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, think of that logic, think of that reasoning, and then notice what he does in the middle of verse 19. Same thing. 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You see what he has done here. It is the same identical rationale. Uh, Who are you going to serve? Well, I'm going to serve the one that I submit to. Well, Paul says there was a day when you used to submit yourself or hand yourself over to impurity and lawlessness. The word impurity there usually has reference in the New Testament to sexual sin. Lawlessness is pretty much what it sounds like. It is living without the law or these rules don't apply to me. And and here's the key. Paul says, when you lived like that, it led to something. It took you somewhere. It led to further, deeper, darker sin, impurity, and lawlessness. There's a principle here you need to pay attention to, and that is that sin leads to more sin, and sin leads to deeper sin. I am a sinner. I am a saved sinner. I'm a forgiven sinner, but I am still a sinner. I sin every day. Usually before I sin, I have a conversation with sin, and it goes something like this. Sin will tempt me with something, and I will say, all right, let's make a deal here. I am not interested in spending a lot of time. I only want to dabble in what you're offering right now. I mean, what you're saying is very alluring. I, 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 would, I would like to do what you're asking me to do, but I don't want to go all in. I just kind of want to stick my toe in the water. And so, Mr. Sin, I will hang around for a few minutes, but let's be clear, I'm leaving pretty soon, and when I leave, I'm not coming back. It's just going to be this one time. And Sin says, absolutely, anything you want. Come right in. You can leave whenever you want. After all, Sin says, I know that you are a Christian, And I know that you have a reputation to uphold, so I'm never going to make you do anything that will jeopardize your reputation or compromise your credibility. And I know that you have a conscience, and your conscience is very important to you, and you want to keep it clear. So I'm not going to keep you around long enough to scar your conscience. You're just going to come in for a minute, and then you're going to leave. In fact, feel free to leave the door open behind you and leave anytime you want. And I say, you promise? And Sin says, Cross my heart, hope to die. Yep, absolutely. And like a fool, you know what I do? I step in, and 100 times out of 100, I regret it. First of all, I regret it because it never satisfies. It satisfies for a few seconds, but it never ultimately satisfies. And it leaves me feeling scarred and dirty. And and you know what? I always end up staying longer than I intended to stay. And I always end up paying more than I thought I was going to. People that study marketing and and employ marketing strategies, they they are brilliant. They get us every time. Uh, What they give you up front is a a price that you think that you're going to pay. You're going to walk in, you're going to get that thing, and you're going to leave. No, that's not the way it works. You know, you, 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 you walk in innocently, you walk out having purchased a, a timeshare in Cancun, you know, it, it's a, which you should never do. But they don't tell you up front that you are going to be 
in bondage for the rest of your life. They just talk to you about wonderful vacation land, and then before you know it, you are hooked. You see, here's the key. Sin always leads to additional previously unadvertised sins. Sin always leads to previously unadvertised sins. Now, if that's what happens to me, and I'm a Christian, I'm saved, what in the world does sin do to those of you that don't know the Lord? It demands your obedience, you obey what it says, and it leads you to more lawlessness. In other words, the reward for lawlessness is more lawlessness. Slavery is a very good analogy here. But don't lose the sentence structure in the flow of the argument. Verse 19, he says, well, just as you used to be submissive to sin, now, in the same way, with the same zeal, the same commitment, the same intensity that you once chased after sin, now that you are saved, I want you to listen to the voice of truth and present yourself or yield yourself or surrender your entities as slaves to righteousness with the same enthusiasm. This has to do, as we spoke the last time, with your time, with your home, with your heart, with your mind, with your talent. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And when you do that, it will lead to something else. See, just as when you pursue sin and you get into it, sin is going to lead you to more sin. This is going to help you more than anything I'm going to say to you today. When you pursue righteousness, something is going to happen. That righteousness is going to lead you to more righteousness. Again, look at verse 19. This will really help you in your sanctification. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, sin leads to sin. Here we go. With the same intensity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification or holiness. Holiness is the process of spiritual growth. So what does sin do? It produces more sin. What does righteousness do? It produces more holy living. You see, you're gonna serve somebody. Rousseau, you are not born free. You cannot be Switzerland. Paul said, you used to be all in on sin. Now, do not change your meter. Do not change your energy. Do not change your speed. The Apostle Paul is a Christ hater and he is a Christian killer and his life is intensely committed to tracking down Christians and killing them. He is stopped in his tracks by a bright light. He hears the word of the Lord. He is converted. And guess what? He does not shift gears at all. He just turns around and starts to run just as fast and just as hard as he previously was running, but now he's running in a different direction, and he is saying, for me to live is Christ, and he becomes the greatest Christian that ever lived. Why? Because he is all in for Jesus, and it makes no sense to me that if you used to be all in for the devil, you had that monkey on your back, you were addicted to whatever it was, and then God sets you free, 
You were, li- you were living all out for the devil. You were set free. Now you are transferred to the kingdom of light. It doesn't make any sense at all that once you get into the kingdom of light, that all of a sudden you now become sheepish and shy and timid and you're tiptoeing and you're not all in. No, Paul says you used to be all in on sin, which led to more sin. Now be all in for Jesus and righteousness, which is going to lead to more righteousness and sanctification. The same effort. Verse 20. Paul's going to make the point that only slaves to righteousness will go to heaven. Uh, There are some people in this room right now who think that they are going to heaven, but you are not going to heaven. Paul's going to make the point to you right now, only slaves to righteousness will be in heaven. Verse 20, for when, he's talking about their unconverted state, for when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. This is odd. This is a backhanded way of saying you used to have a form of freedom. When sin was your master, you had absolutely no ears to hear the voice of God. What he said had absolutely no bearing upon you. A player on one team does not listen to or obey the coach on another team. What he says is completely irrelevant. You felt no obligation whatsoever when you were unsaved to submit to the rules of God. You stayed away from them. When they came up, you changed the subject. You did not read about them. You did not study them. You you wanted nothing to do with them. When a sermon like this was preached, you did everything that you could to watch your watch, to look at the clock and say, when is he going to be done? And to think about things other than what is being said. It wasn't that you're neutral about it. You hated it. You wanted nothing to do with it. It was bothersome to you. And when you did hear the word of God, It held absolutely no weight for you whatsoever. You were under no obligation to keep it. You were free from enslavement to righteousness. You weren't playing for God, so you were free to ignore him. Now as he moves on, he says, but that really was not too much of a plus for you. Because he now asks, how did that turn out for you? How's that working for you? Verse 21 But what fruit were you getting at that time? Not talking about now, but back in that time, back in that time. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. How was it working out for you? When you look back, first of all, you need to acknowledge now, man, not only am I not proud of those things I used to do, but, but, but I am ashamed. I often wonder if somebody is actually saved, if they talk about their past life and they do it in a uh, trivial or joking way and they talk about the sins that they used to commit. Sometimes when we are giving our testimony, we do need to tell what it was like the way that we used to be. But boy, just to go on and on with war stories of what you were like and then to laugh about it, that's not the attitude that you should have about it. And Paul, assuming that they are saved, says, no, no, the natural reaction that you should have to that is that you should be ashamed of those things. So Paul says, let me ask you, those things which you used to do, you don't do them anymore, but you're ashamed that you used to do them. When you think back, 
what kind of fruit did they give you? What did they produce in you? Uh, you were free from righteousness, but you lived for sin. Was it a good master? Was it kind to you? Did it satisfy you? Now remember, you can't be Switzerland. So in your service to sin, did it work out as you hoped that it would? And even if you say that it did work out, in other words, there are some people who are actually enjoying the journey to hell. But even if you say that sin was a delightful boss, Paul adds, for the end of these things is death. Not physical death, but eternal damnation in hell. So even if in the here and now you get what you want, you get what you want, and you won't, but let's just say for the sake of argument you did, Matthew 16, 26, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? So again, don't lose the argument. Don't, don't, don't lose the logic here. Paul is not saying that they still live this way. He's saying that they used to live that way. But here's what it's like right now, verse 22. But now, now that you're saved, now that you're born again, now that you are a slave to righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. This verse deserves special concentration. He's saying you went from one master to another and as slaves of God, as you serve him, there are results. There's fruit. And just as sin produced more sin, so too, please pay attention to this, righteous fruit yields or leads to more righteous fruit or sanctification. It leads to a holy life. And that holy life has an end in view, and it is eternal life in heaven. Now please be careful. Danger, danger, be careful. He is not saying that you earn heaven through your holy life. But what he is saying is, if indeed you have been saved, what's going to happen as evidence of that salvation is that you will start to live a holy life. And as you are living that holy life, it is going to lead to sanctification. And sanctification is going to progress the process incrementally of becoming holy over the course of your Christian life. That is going to happen until you die. And then when you die, boom, what comes next? Eternal life. He is not saying that you, you live a holy life in order to go to heaven. It is faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing, which is equal to salvation. That's the point of the book of Romans. However, Evidence that one has been saved will be that they will become enslaved to righteousness and obedience, and that will produce sanctification or holiness. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That holiness has a goal of heaven. In other words, we who are saved strive to live holy lives, not in order to earn heaven, but we strive to live holy lives because we are already going to heaven. And if you are not living a holy life, if you are not striving to be sanctified, then you are not saved. You are not going to heaven. To put it another way, one who is saved will strive to live a holy life of obedience to the Lord. So I ask you the question, 
Are you striving to go to heaven? It's going to be the same answer as are you striving to be holy? Because you can't have one without the other. Are you bound? Are you bound? Are you bound for the promised land? Paul sums up the whole chapter in the final verse, verse 23, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 23, a microcosm of the entire chapter. The word wages there usually refers to soldiers. For example, when John the Baptist was preaching to the soldiers in the book of Luke, he said, and you soldiers be content with your wages. It's what soldiers would earn for fighting. So the general would recruit soldiers, they would fight, and then he would give the soldiers their wages. What Paul is saying here with reference to sin is that general sin has come along, he has recruited you, and at the end of your fight with him and for him, there is a paycheck for you to pick up, and that is death. Not physical death, but eternal death in hell. Remember, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. But by contrast to these wages, there is something altogether different, and that is a free gift which is offered. You don't pay for it, and you can't work for it. It's free. It is not like wages at all. If your place of employment is a, still a place where you get paper checks, and I realize that I am dating myself with this because everybody has direct deposit, but let's just say for the sake of argument, you can imagine what I'm talking about. You work, and then at the end of the week, you go by the office and you pick up your check. You don't walk into the office and when they hand it to you, you don't say, oh, thank you, thank you so much. I don't even have the words to express how grateful I am that you are giving me my paycheck. I'm going to, I'm going to write you a note. I'm going to send you flowers. Thank you for giving me my paycheck. Now, you might say thank you to the person who handed it to you because they handed it to you, but you are not thanking them for paying you. You earned it, and therefore you do not say thank you. Well, when it comes to salvation, we didn't earn it. It was free. And notice the most beautiful part of the entire passage. It is the gift of God. It is from God. You know why that's the most beautiful portion of the passage? It's because he is the one that we have offended. He is the one that we have been enslaved to sin and we have been at war against him and yet he gives us a free gift. He doesn't come to us and say, I'll make you a deal. Listen, you're in a big hole, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to work your way out. And even though you can't work your way out, I'm going to ask you to work work to try to get yourself out. He doesn't do that at all. He is the offended party, and he gives us the free gift, the grace gift. Do you know why he does that? Because he loves us. I hope you remembered that. I hope you never forget that. He does that <clears throat> because he loves us. I, I understand it, but I can't comprehend why that happens. He's the offended one, and yet in love, he offers us the free gift. He does it not only to his enemies, but he does it at great cost to himself. 
You see, this God cannot just walk up to you and say, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you mercy. You go to heaven. He can't do that. For if he were to do that, then he would be unrighteous. Your sins have to be paid for. And so either you're going to pay for them yourself or someone else paid for them. And this God sends his son to pay for your sins. He loves you. That's why he sends his son to pay for your sins. And then once his son pays for your sins, he offers you this gift for free. And you can't pay for it. Eternal life. You are going to die. We just finished 2023. We're going to live through this year. Lord willing, we're going to get to the end of the year. We're going to be watching the news one night. A few minutes before the newscast is over, they're going to say, and now to remember those that we lost this year. And they're going to play some sappy music and they're going to put up the pictures of the famous people that died this year, the year they were born, the year they died and what they did that was famous. And there's going to be people that are going to die this year. I hope that you're not one of them, but, 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 but eventually you are going to die, and so am I. That's not what he's talking about here. The wages of sin is death. The death that he is referring to here, when contrasted with eternal life, is eternal death. There is no eternal Switzerland. It is either heaven or hell. And God lovingly, mercifully, graciously offers the free gift of eternal life in Christ. William Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice beautifully spells out what mercy is like. You have this guy, Antonio, who goes in debt to Shylock, and he's not going to be able to pay the money back. And so the price that he is supposed to pay is a pound of flesh. That's where that phrase comes from. That's, 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 that's gruesome. And so Antonio has a lawyer by the name of Portia uh, who's pretending to be a man. Uh, that's another sermon for another day. But Portia the lawyer speaks to Shylock uh, defending Antonio and she doesn't do so by claiming that he is innocent. But what she does is she appeals to mercy. And to Shylock, she says, Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. In other words, what she is saying to Shylock is this, If you want justice, well, then we have absolutely no defense. But if we all get justice, none of us will be saved. So Shylock, here's what we're asking for. Mercy. When we stand before God to be judged, we do not want to receive our wages. We do not want what we have earned. We want the free gift of God, which is mercy, which leads to eternal life. And how does that come about? Well, here's the final phrase of the chapter, and every chapter ends, four, five, or, or five, six, seven, and eight, ends with Jesus Christ our Lord. It happens in Christ Jesus our Lord. First of all, he is our Lord, which means he is our boss. We are enslaved to him. And the free gift is ours when we are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be joined to him, to be in union with him. It means that he loved us so much that he died for us. 
He's so powerful that he was raised for our justification. And when we are joined to him, when he died, our sins died with him. And when he was raised, we will forever live with him. So now because he lives, we live forevermore. The gospel is of first importance. I ask you today, have you received the free gift, the mercy of God by believing in Jesus? And if you say that you have, can you honestly say that you are a slave of righteousness? Have you by faith been joined to him that you might have eternal life or are you still a slave to sin? I invite you today to return from your sin or repent and cry out to God for mercy the free gift that comes through Jesus Christ, which is eternal life through his work on your behalf. All right. Six down, ten to go, which means what? Means we're getting there. Father in heaven, thank you for guiding us through six chapters of Romans. Lord, I would pray in Jesus' name that you would save the soul that is closest to death. I would pray in Jesus' name that we who claim to know you would indeed live according to our profession and that we would be enslaved to righteousness leading to sanctification whose end is eternal life. Lord, if there's anybody here who is deceived into thinking that they are in Christ, but yet they are still slaves to sin, Lord, I pray that you would awaken them from their deception and I pray, God, that you would please grant them salvation in Jesus' name. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.